Well, good morning, Bachelor Creek. Uh, so good to be with you today. Uh, just got to say, why don't we give a big round of applause to the Northfield Lady North softball team for winning the state championship. <clears throat> that is uh, an incredible accomplishment, and it makes the whole community proud uh, that they're here uh, in our backyard. And uh, anytime any of our local schools uh, have success, it's so cool to, to kind of claim them as our own. So uh, we're, we're excited and um, so thrilled at uh, their success uh, winning the state championship. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Jonah. Uh, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 2 for most of our time today. As you're turning there, i got to tell you that sometimes as a preacher, you have to work really hard at finding the right illustration to kind of magnify the point that you're trying to make, to amplify the text. And there's other times where it just kind of falls right into your lap. And I'll let you decide which category this falls into. Two days ago on Friday morning, there was a lobster diver. I had to look up what a lobster diver was. Uh, a lobster diver named Michael Packard, and he had an experience that I am sure he will never forget. He was in the ocean searching for lobster off the shore of Provincetown, Massachusetts, when he was swallowed by a humpback whale. The whale was feeding near the beach. Witnesses say that the whale burst to the surface and there immediately followed a frenzy of activity. Packard was inside of the whale for about 20 seconds before the whale released him. He suffered a broken leg and some other minor injuries, but he's expected to make a full recovery. USA Today called the event exceedingly rare. Yeah, I think that's probably true. <laughs> but if you're here with us last week, you know it's not unprecedented. Today we continue our series we're calling Summer Blockbusters. We're going to be spending uh, the next few weeks in the book of Jonah, and then later this summer we'll move on to the book of Judges. Now, if you're having a hard time finding the book of Jonah, it's there in the Old Testament Minor Prophets. It's between Obadiah and Micah. Remember all these books that sound like Star Wars characters? So if you're flipping and you get to Obi-Wan or Ch Chewbacca, you've gone too far, okay? You've got to back up. But we're going to begin actually at the last verse of chapter 1. 1 verse 17, this is what it says. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. So remember, Jonah has been running in disobedience from God. God told him to go to Nineveh. He got on a boat headed for Tarshish. And because of his disobedience, God sends a storm. The other pagan sailors on the boat, they're, they're freaking out because they don't know what's going on. And so they start praying to all of their pagan gods. And Jonah says, no, I know why this is happening. It's because of me. Throw me into the sea and everything will be calm. So that's what they do. Jonah hits the water. The sea becomes as calm as glass. But there's still some things that, that God wanted to do. So he appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. You may be thinking, well, well why is God doing this? Well, we're going to get to this in, in a minute. But, but, the, but the fact is, God hasn't gotten Jonah's attention yet. There's still some work that God has to do in Jonah's heart. And I want you to see that this is not God being mean, this is God being merciful. Like I told you last week, this was not God paying Jonah back for his sin, this was God bringing Jonah back from his sin. And the same thing is happening to some of you. There's a storm in your life and God is trying to get your attention. Verse 17 continues, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
Now, to call this an awful experience would be uh, the exaggeration of the century, right? Michael Packard was in the, the mouth of a humpback whale for 20 seconds. Jonah was in for three days and three nights. Scientists estimate that temperatures would have been between 108 and 115 degrees inside this giant fish. He was cramped in there. He couldn't move his arms. The gastric juices inside of the fish would constantly be circling and washing over him, likely bleaching his skin and making him smell the most putrid smell imaginable. Now, I know you hear this, and some of you are thinking, is this even possible? No, not without God. The whole story is a miracle. It's a miracle that, that, that Jonah was there and a fish was there at just the right time to swallow him. It was a miracle that he survived for three days. It was a miracle that, that he was vomited out onto dry land. Remember, I, I told you that if you believe that there is a God who created the entire world with, with a spoken word, and he was present in the person of Jesus Christ, and he healed the sick and he raised the dead, then when we read stories like this, it shouldn't bother us. There's so many more things that would be harder to believe than this. Listen, we serve a God where nothing is impossible. If God wanted to, he could have furnished the fish with, the, with Wi-Fi and central air. God could do that. Now let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Now the original language and some of our English translations say, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. So after Jonah had been in there for three days, he prayed. He laid inside of that fish, stubborn and unmoving, for three days, which shows you the depth of Jonah's struggle. Because what God had asked Nineveh to do was really difficult for Jonah. Jonah was asked to go and preach of God's mercy to the Ninevites, and Jonah didn't want to do it. Because I told you they were a very cruel and a brutal, brutal culture. In their own writings, that they boasted of how, of how harsh they were. In their histories, they talk about killing and raping little girls and women. One of their leaders I read this week, his name was Asher Nazarpal. Asher Nazarpal, that's a mouthful. I'm guessing he grew up to resent his parents for naming him that. But he recorded that when he conquered a rebellious city, he would skin alive the leaders of that, that city, and he would drape their skins around the city and, and use them as flags to assert his dominance, to show you how powerful he was. And one of Nineveh's greatest enemies was Israel, their neighbors to the south. So, so to comprehend what's going on here, this would be something like a, a Jew in 1942 in Berlin going to preach God's mercy and forgiveness to the, to, the, to the Germans. Jonah finds himself in a dilemma. One of two things would happen. They would either reject his message and they would kill him, or they would receive the message and obtain mercy. Jonah, a prophet of God, was upstanding in every other area of his life, but this is where he told God no. I told you there's a lot of people that they will obey God up until a place where it touches the very core of their identity, where they, where they find value and significance. And I know that I'm talking to a lot of people here just like that. For example, that there are some of you who you just won't obey God in the area of romance. Every other area of your life you'll obey God in, but this is this, is this one area that you, can, you insist on controlling 
because it's just so important to you. There are some of you that you won't obey God in the area of money. You won't be generous. You won't give up certain luxuries to invest in the mission of God. You won't tithe because money is is so important to you. It's where you find your meaning. It's where you find your security in life. There are some of you who won't release your kids to the will of God because you want to control their future. You want to control their plans. There are some of you who won't let the reins off your life and say, God, send me wherever. You won't say, God, not my will, but your will be done. And there's a lot of you like this where you obey God in in all these areas of your life up to a very point where it touches the core of who you are, and that's when you say, God, no. Verse 3, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Question, did Jonah feel like God had forgotten him? Yeah. Had he? No. There are some of you, you feel like you've been forgotten by God. You feel like you are in the heart of the sea, that the floods have surrounded you. But listen, you have not been forgotten by God. The broken heart you're experiencing, the financial frustrations you find yourself in, the lost job, the failing health, all of these have been appointed by God in your life for the purpose of bringing you back. It's a sign of God's mercy. God is in relentless pursuit of those that he loves. He has brought you here in the storm for a purpose. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. As Jonah prays to God, he finds himself repenting. And what we see is that Jonah's repentance was built on the realization of three things. And all repentance is ultimately built on these three things. Number one is when we realize the futility of life without God. We realize life is futile without God. Jonah was in a place of hopelessness. The weeds like chains were wrapping around his head. The bars like a prison were closing around him forever. And you know, that's what it takes for a lot of people. It's a broken marriage, a tragic accident, a health report, an addiction that you can't kick, a prison sentence, Now, I've heard a lot of people who will criticize others when they make decisions in time like this. The argument goes, well, you know, you're in a jam, you you feel crushed, and so, yeah, you turn to God. But it's not genuine. You just need a crutch to lean on in a difficult time, but but it's not real. As soon as things return to normal, you you won't follow God anymore. You'll go back to realizing you don't need Him. And I'll be honest, a lot of times I agree with that opinion. Because if you use God only to get out of a situation, then once you're out of the situation, you won't need God anymore. But there are a lot of times where life falls apart, and in that moment, you realize how hopeless life is apart from God. You see that nothing you have you can boast in. All the things that you've built cannot sustain you. And in that moment, you wake up like coming out of a dream. Again, I want to ask, are some of you there right now? For some of you, it may not be such a dramatic experience like it was for Jonah. For you, it may be 
more of a general just kind of deadness in your life. You have no joy. You have no, no satisfaction in life. You're not fu- finding fulfillment. Maybe for you, you're giving yourself more and more to what I might call numbing activities. Where, where you just watch a lot and a lot of TV. You're not even captured by the content. You're just captured by the escape that it gives you. Or you find yourself spending endless hours on the internet, mindlessly scrolling through social media feeds. You find yourself finding more and more pleasure in in excess food and excess alcohol. You're finding that certain temptations are just starting to control you. You notice how when you haven't had anything to eat for a long time and you're starving, I'm not sure many of us really understand what it means to starve, but, but if, you are, if you are so hungry, it doesn't matter what it is, you'll eat it, right? And the same thing is true when your soul is starving. Any vice, any pleasure you'll hold on to. Maybe you've been eaten up with envy. You look around at other people and you see that they've been, they've been given all the things that they wanted and, and you're left without and you're kind of saying, God, did you forget my address? You know where I am? Or maybe you're, you're older and you find in yourself this growing sense of panic about what it is that you're losing. I talked to a guy not too long ago. He said, you know, we always warn young people about what happens when you choose a path in life apart from God. But with older people, it's different. It's what, it's what to do when, when you find that the things that you've built your life upon begin to unravel. Maybe for you, you've watched your parents age and, and you wonder what that process is going to be like for you. Someone once said, I'm not afraid to die, I'm afraid of getting older. So you're seeing the things that you've built, the company, the organization, you see it be destroyed. You're doing everything you can to, to hold on to it. You look around at a yearbook and you see classmates start to pass away. You see friends start to pass away. And and you're seeing the things that you've established your whole life on won't last. All of these things, all they are is smoke from a fire. And if you trace the smoke back, you'll find the source. You'll find what it is that we're searching for. What it is that we find significance in. What it is that we find meaning in. Whatever it is for you, repentance always begins with a note of despair where you get a glimpse of death, you realize you're going to die and you're going to stand before the judgment of God and in that moment, all the accomplishments you've achieved, all the praises you've received, how you've lived, all the friends you have, no matter how good your marriage is, all of it is meaningless if you stand condemned to hell. In that moment, it all goes up before your eyes like a puff of smoke. So whatever it is that is going on in your life right now, that is God trying to wake you up before that moment comes. Verse 6, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. See, Jonah felt like there was no hope, but there was. God was at work. He hadn't put Jonah in the chamber of death. He put Jonah in a temporary hospital for his soul. Some of you, you feel like you're in a place right now where there is no hope. But there is. God is beginning to do his greatest work in your life right now. 
verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. This verse is fascinating to me. Jonah is celebrating his deliverance while he's still in the belly. We just read verse 6, you brought my life up from the pit, but he won't be vomited out into dry land until verse 10. You see, there is a greater deliverance than deliverance from circumstances. It's deliverance from sin. It is better to be united with God in the belly of a whale than to be on dry land without him. The, The real pit is being anywhere apart from God. Here's a good formula for us to remember. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. This right here, verse 8, I want you to notice this is the key verse in the book of Jonah. Right smack dab in the middle. There's 24 verses before it. There's 23 verses after it. And so we have to ask, who's Jonah talking about here? Because there's two concepts that he uses in this verse. One is idolatry, which makes you think that he's talking about the pagan sailors. Remember in chapter 1, where where they cried out to their their pagan gods, their their false gods, for, for deliverance? But there's also that word love. In Hebrew, that word is hased. Hased. It's steadfast love. It's God's covenant love that he had for his children, Israel. And so you've got idolatry, which makes you think of the pagan sailors. It makes you think of the Ninevites. But you've also got hased, which makes you think Jonah is talking about himself here, since after all, he's the one who's praying for deliverance. And scholars say that in this verse, something remarkable just happened. One, they say that Jonah has applied the sin of idolatry to all people, including himself, as God's prophet. Jonah is acknowledging that idolatry is the source of his own sin. Jonah thought it would be better to disobey God and hold on to all the things that he loved rather than obey God and hold on to God. Jonah valued what he loved, his life, his identity, his racial hatred, more than he valued God. And now Jonah realizes that that has kept him from the one great source of peace and joy and fulfillment in his life. The second thing scholars say happened here is that in this verse, God has expressed a desire of covenant love for all nations and all people. And we're going to see that in chapter 3 next week. But for now, I want you to write this down. Repentance comes when you realize, secondly, the emptiness of idols. The emptiness of idols. All sin ultimately begins in idolatry. All of it. Now, you may have a hard time seeing it that way. You're saying, Joel, I live in the 21st century. I don't have any golden statues in my house. I don't have any altars set up in my backyard that that we're making sacrifices to. But here's what you need to understand. An idol is simply something that you love, trust, or crave more than God. An idol is anything that you love, trust, or crave more than God. Our English word worship comes from an old English word, worth-ship. Worth-ship. It's when something has such worth in your life that you couldn't imagine living without it, and so you build your entire life in pursuit of that thing. 
See, what we prize the most, we pursue the hardest. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that idolatry was behind the first sin in the Garden of Eden. What did they want? They, They wanted what came from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted the tree more than they wanted God. What do you want more than God? One of the Hebrew words for worship, it's a word related to worship. It means glory. It's the word kabod. And kabod means weight. What do you give more weight than God? The great German reformer Martin Luther said, to whatever we look for any good thing and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. So I think this quote can help us. I want to ask you this. What good things do you most look to meet your needs? Say, well, how how do I know? Well, let me ask you some questions. What can't you live without? What are you so envious of that other people have that you don't? What do you stay up late at night worrying about? What are you bitter about having lost? What is that one thing that you say, without this, life just isn't really worth living? Do you notice there in that that quote, Luther talks about refuge? Where do you go to find refuge? What brings you the greatest source of comfort or joy? Where do you go when life gets tough? Do you go to your friends? Do you go to your family? Do you go to a little piece of plastic where you just go shopping and you buy things because it allows you to escape from the current reality and it allows you to escape from from what it is that's truly going on in your life? For some people, they go to the bottle. They go to alcohol. Now listen, these things usually aren't bad things in and of themselves. They're good things that we've turned into ultimate things. They're good things that we've made God things. You've given your heart to them. You've entrusted your being to them. And the tragedy, Jonah says, is that when you do that, you forfeit the grace of God. You forfeit the steadfast love of God that could be yours. Everything that you've been searching for all along is found in God, whether you realize it or not. See, most of us, we've given our lives in pursuit of a God that has left us or will leave us scared, bitter, and unsatisfied. Scared because if we get it, we're terrified about losing it. If we miss out on it, we're bitter, and when we do obtain it, we find out that it's not what our soul needed it to be. I think of an interview that I saw years ago with Tom Brady after he won, I think, his fourth Super Bowl. forget how many he's at now, six. I don't. He was being interviewed, and he talked to the interviewer, and he was saying, Here I am, I've achieved all of this success, I'm at the top of the mountain professionally. Why do I still feel so empty? Why do I still feel like there's more out there? He realized the emptiness of idols, that they never promise, they can never deliver on what they promise. We read in 1 John 4, 18, that perfect love casts out fear. God's love is perfect and that it is completely satisfying. It accepts us in spite of our flaws. So why would we ever forsake that love? That thing you're looking for, 
what you truly want in life, it's not going to be found in anything else. It's not going to be found in romance. You know, the, the myth that a lot, of, a lot of single people think is that if, if I just find the right person, if I can just get married, then my life will be better, then I'll find fulfillment, then I'll find satisfaction. But the truth of the matter is, lonely, discontented, insecure single people become lonely, discontented, insecure married people. Because what you're looking for will not be fulfilled in a spouse. What you're looking for will not be fulfilled in an affair. It's not going to be fulfilled in being in the top of your class. It's not getting the highest paying job. It's not climbing to the top of the corporate ladder. It's not in a new hobby. It's not in a drug. It's not in a fling with a secretary. What you are looking for is found and found alone in the love of God. That's it. My favorite preacher one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, he says that there are four possible responses when we are disappointed with idols. And eventually we will all be disappointed with our idols. We do one of four things. We either, one, blame the idol, two, we blame ourselves, three, we blame the world, or four, we turn to God. C.S. Lewis, in his benchmark book, Mere Christianity, he said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Verse 9. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Repentance comes from the realization, third, that salvation comes from the Lord. This church is the message of the Bible. Salvation comes from the Lord. There are three types of people in this world. Irreligious people, religious people, and Christians. Irreligious people believe that they don't need salvation. Religious people believe that they need salvation, but they think they can obtain it themselves. But Christians, gospel people, understand that salvation comes from the Lord. It's what Christians for centuries has called grace. Grace is an undeserved gift by an unobligated giver. An undeserved gift by an unobligated giver. It's like this, if, if you give a gift to a child and your child is rebellious, your child is hateful, but, but you still take care of them because it's your responsibility, you're a caretaker, then they are an undeserving recipient, but you are an obligated giver. On the other hand, if you get together and, and you decided to give your small group leader a gift just out of your appreciation for them, well, that might be an unobligated gift, but they are a deserving recipient. It's when both of these are true. For example, let's say that you have a neighbor who is just a jerk, okay? He's rude. He calls the cops on you and says that you're being too loud. He puts all his leaves over in your yard, okay? But when he gets sick, you take care of him. You bring him food. Well, that is an undeserving gift by an unobligated giver. And that's what we are to Christ. And when we experience that grace, it creates a handful of, of things in our lives. Two of which Jonah has and one he doesn't. It creates humility and confidence. And people usually have one or the other. They either have humility because they know how badly they need salvation, or they have confidence because they believe they deserve it and they're proud. 
But the gospel is the only thing that gives you both humility and confidence. I have humility because I understand the depth of my need. I have confidence because I understand the depth of his undeserving love. And through the storms in our lives, God is getting us to the place where we can see that, where we can feel it, and where we can understand it. But that process can be pretty painful. It's like going through surgery and they forgot to give you anesthesia. It can hurt. But Jonah has both humility and confidence because now he understands the gospel. He knows the depth of his need. He knows the depth of the undeserving love he has in God. You see, the gospel is good news that you are more wicked than you ever dared believe, and yet you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hoped because of God's steadfast love. Now, the third thing that that this experience of grace is supposed to create in your heart, which we don't see in Jonah, is passion. It's It's a love for God, a love for others, a response to what God has done. But Jonah doesn't get that. He's going to emerge from the belly of the fish, fully surrendered to God's will, but he still hates the Ninevites. He's still bitter towards God. Yes, he will obey because he doesn't want to go back into the belly of the fish, but he's not going to be happy about it, which is supposed to give you a picture of most religious people. Most religious people, they know it's stupid to run from God, but they've never learned to love like God loves. And so if I could speak this way, it's kind of like a Christianity 1.0 and 2.0. 1.0 is where you recognize the stupidity of idolatry and you surrender to God. But 2.0 is where you recognize the greatness of God's grace, and that's where your heart really begins to change. There's this point where, where you surrender to God because you feel bad, okay? Most religious people understand that. But then there's a point where you start to love like God loves. You do what God does because you have the same desires as God. One of the things we learn from the study of Jonah is that God is not just after our obedience, he's after a whole new kind of obedience. Which is why we have to read the book of Jonah in two ways. The first way is what we might call the existential way. Where when we read Jonah, we see a picture of ourselves. It's where we say, I am Jonah. But the second way we read it is what we might call the messianic way. It's where we read it and we see that Jesus is Jonah. Jonah was cast out into the sea because of his disobedience. He was swallowed by by a, a giant fish and was in the fish for three days, and then he was vomited out onto dry land. Jesus was cast into the sea of God's wrath at the cross, not because of his disobedience, because of ours. He was there in the ground for three days, and then three days later he rose from the dead. And now we get into chapter 2 of Jonah. We read this prayer inside the belly of the fish. And I don't know about you, but when I read it, you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went down to the deep. He had the weeds of sin wrap around his head. The bars of death closed around him. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that right there should move us towards repentance. Because the truth is, you see, I'll probably never go through what Jonah went through because Jesus went through it for me. And looking at that and understanding that ought to move me towards repentance. Romans 2 tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Not bare-knuckled, try-harder repentance, but a repentance that comes with a change of heart. You see, being put in the belly of a whale can coerce you into obedience. 
But when we see that Jesus went into the real belly of the whale, that's what creates new desires in our hearts. So we should read Jonah and see ourselves in Jonah and be warned. But we should see Jesus in Jonah and we should worship. And that church is the goal of every sermon. The goal of every sermon is that the name of Christ would be lifted up high and we would worship. The goal of a lecture is to get information. The goal of a motivational speech is to have action steps. But the goal of a sermon is to worship. God is not after merely obedience. He's after a whole new kind of obedience. And so as I conclude, I just want to give you two questions that I want to leave you with, that I want you to allow to sink into your heart and allow God to do a work. One question, have you surrendered? Have you surrendered? Has God brought you to this point where you realize the futility of idols? You realize that building your life on anything other than God is a waste of time. Repentance comes from desperation, realizing the futility of idols and understanding that salvation belongs to the Lord. Second question, has your heart changed? Has your heart changed? Do you love God? Do you love people that aren't like you? Do you love the Ninevites? Do you have a passion for God and for others? And that comes from plunging more deeply into the depths of the gospel, not by doing everything you can for God, but understanding more deeply what he has done for you. Have you surrendered? And has your heart changed? If not, we want to give you an opportunity to respond today. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today with a heart of humility. But because of Jesus, we can also come before you confidently. God, we understand the the depth of our sin. We understand that it separates us from you, but we also remember that you loved us so much with a steadfast covenant love that there's nothing that can separate us from it. And so with boldness, we go forth. God, I pray that you would build within us a passion for you, that we would live lives on mission, that that we would get to the point where we surrender, where we repent, where we turn from our idols. But God, I pray that that we would plunge ourselves deeper and deeper into the gospel and, and our heart would be changed. We would love the things that you love. We would love your people. We would live on mission. So God, I pray that we would surrender. I pray that our hearts would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.